You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. If you guys will, open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. It's page 1011 in your pew Bible, if you don't have your own copy of Scripture. Uh, With you this morning, you can open up to page 1011 in the pew Bible. You know, church, a a recent Pew Research study sadly revealed something that we kind of already know to be true, but continues to be true, is that Christianity continues to be in decline in America. No surprise there. And believe it or not, the fastest growing religion in America is the rise of the nuns. Now, just to be clear, when I say rise of the nuns, I'm not referring to the rise of Catholic nuns living in monasteries. I'm referring to the religious nuns. In other words, those who have no religious affiliation at all. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're agnostic or even mean that they're atheist. They're simply apathetic to any religion. However, at the same time, their apathy toward religion doesn't mean they're uninterested in spiritual things. Because a similar study showed that Americans are increasingly more spiritual but not religious whatever that means. In other words, they welcome elements of spirituality into their lives, but they're non-committal to a particular religion. And again, truth be told, in many ways, this shouldn't surprise us, because Scripture says that the enemy of our souls is crafty, and he will do everything he can to prevent people from seeing the truth. In fact, the enemy is really good at getting people to believe in something, just not the right thing. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, So therefore, as we see more and more false religions and spirituality increase in our culture, it shouldn't catch us off guard, because Satan is a great deceiver. And church, he is working overtime to lead people astray from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. At the same time, I can't help but wonder how often God's people might actually be helping the enemy in his cause. What do I mean? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, he said, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, as believers, we're called to look different than the world around us. People ought to look at our lives and be blown away by the godly attitudes and actions that they see. So much so that it draws them closer to the Lord, gives him glory. But church, I can't help but wonder if more and more people people consider themselves the religious nuns, not necessarily because they've been led away by the enemy, although that's a big part of it, but because they've been pushed away by the testimony of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. They looked at Christianity and have found nothing appealing because the church's walk doesn't match the church's talk. You guys understand what I'm saying? You're getting it, right? You're getting it. Let's be honest, you're getting it. And so this morning, as we continue our study in the book of James, we're going to explore what life-changing, light-shining, God-pleasing, worthwhile religion 
looks like. And in doing so, we're going to be reminded of a really simple truth, but we really got to apply it to our lives, and it's this. God-pleasing religion practices, say that word with me, practices, what it preaches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the opportunity to hop into your word this morning and to hear from your servant James, Lord. And I thank you for the reminder of the importance, God, of shining our light in a culture that's filled with darkness. Lord, the way it's supposed to work is as things get darker, the light gets brighter and easier to see. But Lord, we admit that so often we do hide our light under a basket. Or Lord, that maybe our light is just but, but a very dim glimmer in the midst of darkness. And so God, I pray that this morning you would open up all of our eyes uh, so that our light, your light might shine more brightly through us this morning. Speak to us through your word. Help me to get out of the way. May we all leave here closer to Jesus than when we arrived. And all God's people said, amen. All right. So as a reminder, the book of James is a straight shooting, no holds barred, black and white testimonial on how to have a living, visible, productive faith in a fallen world. James doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't mince his words. And so last week, we encountered James telling the church that being hearers of the word is not enough. In other words, it wasn't enough just to be a pew sitter. You had to actually do something with your faith. To have a productive faith, they needed to put into practice what they heard preached. And the same is true with the church today. I've heard it said that the American church possesses over 90% of the world's Christian resources. Now, if this is true, and I have no reason to believe that it isn't true, then the one thing the American church is not lacking is access to the knowledge of God's word. The problem that we face is that our level of knowledge far exceeds our level of what? Obedience. Yes, our faith comes by hearing the word of God, but our faith is futile when we don't act upon what we've heard from the word of God. And so all this to say, just like the Jerusalem church, the church of today, that we don't have a knowledge problem, we have an obedience problem. And so therefore, if we desire to live in a way that actually pleases the Lord, then our attitudes and actions need to change. And so in today's text, James is going to reveal some practical ways on how to make those changes. Let's read the entire passage, just a couple of verses, and then we'll kind of break it down a bit. So it's James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Follow along with me. It says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there it is. You know, one of the more popular Christian cliches that we're all guilty of using, but we probably shouldn't use anymore, is this. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. And look, before you shoot the messenger, I get it. I mean, I understand what we're trying to say. I've used this phrase countless times before. I'll probably continue to use it because I'm so used to already using it. But understand where I'm coming from here. We use it because we're trying to convey that Christianity isn't merely following a set of rules or regulations or going through repetitive, impersonal, liturgical practices. In a very real sense, at the heart of Christianity is a personal relationship with the living God. That's clearly distinctive. 
However, that doesn't mean that Christianity isn't a religion. I mean, religion can be defined simply as a particular system of faith and worship. And so in this respect, Christianity is a religion. Perhaps a more accurate cliche would be it's more than just a religion. It's a personal relationship. Or it's a religion that's based upon a personal relationship. Nevertheless, James reminds the Jerusalem church that a big part of having a personal relationship with Christ is obeying the attitudes, beliefs, and practices of Christ. This is the type of religion that's pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. And so found within today's passage are three God-pleasing practices of religion. Let's begin by looking at the first. Purity in your talk. Purity in your talk. Look again at verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So a story is told that one day while John Wesley was preaching, he noticed a lady in the audience who was known for her very critical attitude. And all throughout his sermon, he, the lady stared intently and impatiently at his bow tie. When the meeting ended, she approached the pastor and sternly said, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long. It's an offense to me. And so he asked if anyone around him had a pair of scissors. And when the scissors were handed to him, he handed them over to his critic and told her to trim the bow tie to her liking. And after she clipped the strings and close to his collar, he said, are you sure they're all right now? And she replied, yes, that's much better. And then Wesley then asked for the scissors and said, I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also gave you a bit of correction. I must tell you, madam, that your tongue is an offense to me. It's too long. Please stick it out. I'd like to cut some off. Church, from a spiritual perspective, the tongue is one of the most volatile parts of the body because it reveals what's inside the body. Which is absolutely why, or which is why it's absolutely vital that we regularly keep our tongue in check. Listen to Jesus. He gave this somber warning in Matthew 12, 34 through 37. He said, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is so convicting when you start thinking about how you talk. Because how you talk is a reflection of what's inside. He said, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Yikes. And so in today's passage, James compares the tongue to bridling a horse. The bridle, along with the bit, was an instrument that was used to control a horse. And so in no uncertain terms, James was calling the church to keep a tight rein of control on their tongues. Otherwise, listen to this, otherwise their religious efforts, no matter how valiant they were, no matter how commendable, would actually be meaningless in the eyes of God. Think about that. You see, you might attend church frequently. You might give to the church generously. You might read the Bible consistently. You might pray liberally. You might sing God's praises passionately. But if your tongue is habitually known for gossiping, slandering, coarse-joking, criticizing, lying, you name it, then everything else that you do in God's name is done in vain. Man. 
that sink in, church, especially in today's world where we cannot learn to zip our lips, right? It's for this reason that the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.29, he said, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. See, we're not supposed to feed the age of outrage with, with how we speak as believers. I know it's popular to be angry at everything right now, and I'm, I'm there, I get angry too, but if we don't control what comes out of our tongue... We're not giving grace to those who hear. It's a direct violation of what Scripture teaches. You know, several years ago, I came home from hunting, and I rested my crossbow on my kitchen island. And while I was taking the first layer off of my hunting clothes, something happened, and I bumped into my crossbow, causing it to fall on the hard floor. And without any warning, a word slipped out of my mouth that, let's just say, did not give grace to those who hear. And in the broad scheme of things, this event would, have been, would not have been that big of a deal. However, what made it a big deal was that it happened right in front of my kids, who at the time were very young, and they never heard their daddy say this less than graceful word before. Well, you would have thought a black cloud descended over my house that night. My two oldest kids were so shocked, they started to cry. And from their pers- oh yeah, they gave me a lecture, you're a pastor, you know, um, <laughs> I, yep. And, and from their perspective, though, my, my bad language let them down. See, they were let down by my bad language. And needless to say, I, I felt pretty small and saddened and convicted. And, of course, shortly thereafter, the dad apology tour began. But, church, this, this vivid example is what happens when we have an unbridled tongue. It may not seem like a big deal to us, but it can have a big impact on others and their view of us. In fact, it can be rightly said, listen, it can be rightly said that the entirety of our Christian testimony rises and falls on the tongue in many ways. Proverbs 21:23 says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of what? Trouble. And this is a really good reminder especially given the fact that we like to talk a lot. One commentator noted, it has been estimated that the average person will speak some 18,000 words in a day, enough to fill a 54-page book. And in a year, that amounts to 66 800-page volumes. Kind of makes you wonder, what in the world are we talking about all year long? But consider this thought. This thought occurred to me as I came across that stat. If the last year of your verbal life were comprised in 66 800-page commentaries, what would your commentary say? Would there be anything of meaning and value and purpose within those pages? If people read it page by page, would they be led closer to the Lord? Or would the pages be filled with mostly useless and unholy content, leading your readers farther from the Lord? Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue can bring life 
excuse me, can bring death or life. And those who love to talk will reap the consequences. And so therefore, church, as far as it depends on us and the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to aim to speak life to those around us. Because it's only when we speak life that God will be glorified and our religious efforts will be worthwhile. Are you with me? That one guy is. Is everybody else with me? All right, just making sure. I'm tracking with that one dude over there. This leads us to the second practice of God-pleasing religion. Purity in your walk. Purity in our talk, we need purity in your walk. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We'll stop there. This past week I learned, because I wasn't around then, but in 1968, apparently, New York City experienced what is known as the Great Garbage Strike. And due to unfair wages and poor working conditions, the sanitation workers had enough and they made their voices known. And so all of a sudden, these typically underrated uh, and undervalued people became some of the most important people, if not the most important people, in the city. Why? Because the powers that be realized how essential they were to society. After all, the threat of having tens of thousands of garbage bags and cans piling up in the streets is more than enough to get your attention. Now they're all piled up right behind me here at the Troop Landfill. They get our attention on a hot summer night when it smells. But anyway, that's besides the point. But more importantly, basic human dignity was at stake. One worker was quoted as saying, we may handle garbage, but we're not garbage. And so seemingly overnight, these mistreated, overlooked nobodies became somebodies, and they finally began to be treated with the dignity and respect that they deserved. Well, church, oftentimes we're guilty we're guilty as the church of overlooking the underrated in our society. Oftentimes we turn a blind eye to their needs and treat them like garbage instead of treating them like Christ, with Christ-like love and dignity and respect. Of course, God, on the other hand, has a special love for those who are lowly and rejected by society. In fact, he has a special place in his heart for the nobodies. Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. You see, orphans and widows in particular were some of the most helpless and overlooked people in the ancient Jewish world. In fact, the word affliction literally means pressure. See, there was this tremendous amount of pressure put on widows for meeting the basic needs or meeting their basic needs because in ancient Jewish culture, there was the absence of money making possibilities for women. And so quite literally, orphans and widows were often mistreated by society and helpless. They were just overlooked. They needed advocates to step in on their behalf. And that's where God's people are, are supposed to step up. In fact, helping the helpless is a crucial part of the Christian walk. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And it goes on, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You see, going all the way back to the Old Testament, it's always been God's plan to use his people to meet the needs of those who are helpless. There's other verses in Deuteronomy and Exodus. And so just to be clear, when James calls the church then to visit orphans and widows in their pressure, in their affliction, in their distress... It implies more than just dropping by to say hello. In other words, it's not, you know, you got somebody here who's in need, 
And it's not just dropping by and saying, oh, that's good to see you today. Let's take care. Have, enjoy that problem and, and move on. It's more than that. It involves personally joining them, looking out for them, doing everything you can to bring them relief. Galatians 6.2 instructs us bear, which means to take up or carry one another's burdens, and so what? Fulfill the law of Christ. Now, it is worth noting that even though James specifically mentions orphans and widows, because they were certainly some of the most helpless in that day, and in many ways continue to be today, his command can certainly be applied to anyone who is helpless, overlooked, under pressure, and in need of compassion and provision. It can be someone who has pressures due to illness or broken relationships, unemployment, family problems, marriage problems, you name it. You see, the overall point is that we're, we're to help those who are helpless and have a Christ-like compassion on those who are neglected in society. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, both James and John remind us that if we are capable of helping someone in need and choose not to, then our supposed religion is offensive and it's fruitless in the eyes of God. In fact, later in this book, James put it even more bluntly in James 4.17. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And so all this to say, church, knowing this truth, we must be careful to make sure that our Christian walk exemplifies our Christian talk, specifically in showing Christ-like compassion and generosity to the vulnerable around us. Otherwise, our faith is futile. Let's move on to the third practice of God-pleasing religion, and that brings us to purity in your hearts. Look at the, the second half of verse 27. I'll read the whole thing, but we'll highlight the, the second half. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Church, when I was in high school, I distinctly remember coming home from school and craving a salad. And why, as a teenager, I craved a salad, I have no idea. I was a cheeseburger, french fries, and Coke kind of guy. But on this particular day, maybe I was feeling a little bit healthy or whatever, or maybe I was feeling a little unhealthy, and I wanted to have a salad. So I went home to my house, and I grabbed this beautiful, fresh head of lettuce, and I started creating this wonderful vegetation pile of goodness on a plate with cheese and lots of dressing. And so anyway, I'm eating away at my salad, doing my thing, and it's tasting so good. And I'm about three or four mouthfuls in when I look down and I notice that my bowl, my salad, was moving. Yeah, it wasn't good. There were bugs crawling all over my salad. Some were mixed in with the dressing. They had the inability to crawl anymore. Others were living their dream. It was a bug's life. It was a bug's life in my salad. You see, the problem was the head of lettuce looked really appealing and fresh and good on the outside, 
but it was infested with bugs on the inside. You're welcome. Happy lunch. <laughs> Needless to say, I about threw up, of course, and that lettuce got thrown out. And the moral of the story is salads are not good for you. <clears throat> but the, the walking heart attack is clapping back here saying, yeah, salads aren't good for you. I kid, I, I like salads once in a while still, but I always check them now to see if they're crawling. But anyway, in his final exhortation, James is careful to mention, and I appreciate this, he's careful to mention that religion that is pleasing to the Lord doesn't merely consist of looking good on the outside. Anyone could do that, right? You can talk the talk. You can walk the walk. People fake it all the time. And here's, here's the crazy part. You can fake me out as a pastor till you're blue in the face. And, I, and I, maybe I just can't see it. I can't read you. I, I can't tell if you're faking or not. You seem genuine, whatever. Fake me out as much as you want. But here's the problem. You know what you can't fake out? Can't fake out, go. Can't fake out, go. So you can talk the talk. You can walk the walk. And you can look all good and pretty on the outside. But on the inside, if you're infested, God knows. And so what James is trying to kind of tell us is we need to guard our hearts from the infestation of sin. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Church, there is nothing in our lives that requires more care and attention than our hearts. Just as we need healthy hearts to stay physically alive, we need healthy hearts to stay spiritually alive. To keep oneself unstained by the world means to guard ourselves from becoming corrupted, contaminated, infested by the world's system and values which stand in direct opposition to God's kingdom values. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Church, I cannot think of a more accurate description of where our world stands today. Whether it be issues of morality or sexuality or ideology, the world is rapidly taking the Lord's standards of righteousness and replacing them with its own standards of righteousness. And you better believe them. You better believe them. Or you're in trouble. And these are all standards that blatantly thumb their nose against the Almighty God. Like just straight up as if like we're invincible and we're going to do whatever the heck we want. And you just deal with it, God. I mean, that's kind of the attitude that our world portrays. And friends, now more than ever before, there's this incredible amount of pressure to compromise on God's standards in order to appease the world's standards. It's literally in your face, almost everywhere you go, and in everything you watch, and what you listen to. And as a result, it's becoming increasingly more unpopular to maintain a biblical worldview in today's culture. Let me encourage you. Be brave. And do not cave. I like what Tony Evans says. He said, don't let the world rub off on you. Instead, rub off on the world and leave behind a trace of grace. I like that. I like that quote because it shows that we can stand in opposition to the world and still love the world at the same time. 
and, and, and show them the, the love of Christ. Likewise, and, I, and this is why I wanted to read Isaiah 5, God warns, so th- just listen, God warns that terrible judgment awaits those whose attitudes stand in rebellion to his righteousness. So you can maintain whatever attitude you want to have, but, but Scripture warns that great judgment comes to those who stand in opposition to God. And the sad reality is what we're starting to see is that many Christians forget this and are acquiescing to the world's corrupt ways in order to avoid social pushback and save face. Friends, when we're tempted to do the same, and you will be, and we are, we need to remember the wisdom of Paul in Galatians 5.9. It's really simple wisdom. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, letting small things in can have a big impact. I remember when my youngest son was still young. You know, he'd always, like kids do, drink out of sippy cups, right? And so I remember we used to pack sippy cups of water in the van. So like you always have to have water. Still with my kids, you always have to have water in the van. Always have to have water because if we go to get ice cream and we don't have water in the van, it's a long drive home. Well, anyway, uh, it was a really hot summer day. And I remember feeling very parched, and I needed water. And the only water we had in the van was my son's sippy cup water. And so Terry said, drink out of the sippy cup. And so, of course, I no, not that. I took the, took the lid off, and I just, I just gulped that baby down because I was thirsty. About three-quarters of it, gulped it down, and, man, it was refreshing. But kind of similar to my salad story. <laughs> I realized that... My son's sippy cup, and this is, of course, after I drank it, my son's sippy cup was also filled with my son's sippy backwash. There were hundreds of UFOs in that cup, unidentified floating objects. Needless to say, not only did I get a drink that day, I also got a meal. I got way more than I bargained for. All of my stories revolve around bad food. You notice that? That's my whole life, you know, curdled milk and everything. So anyway... Another story. I'll save that for a different illustration someday. A lot of curdled milk issues with my life. Friends, listen. The the same is true when we allow the world's influence, our attitudes and actions. We get way more than we bargained for. It may seem satisfying at first, but it doesn't take long for us to realize that the world's fountain is contaminated. And if we keep drinking from it, we're going to be contaminated as well. And this is why James calls us to be unstained, literally spotless, so that we might reflect the pure glory in light of Christ. I think Paul summed it up best in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you, by testing, may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what life-changing, light-shining, God-pleasing, worthwhile religion looks like. It involves purity in our talk, what we say, purity in our walk, what we do, how we serve others, and purity in our hearts, what we believe and value. On the inside. This is the type of religion that makes God smile. So let me ask you a question. How many of you guys want to make God smile with how you live your life? Say, I do. I do. I do do as well. 
And so therefore, let us as a church, even right now, make a personal and corporate commitment this morning to repent of sin and begin living in a way that does exactly that. Amen? God-pleasing living. Can we do that? We can't do it by ourselves, but we can certainly do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And this leads us back to today's truth to remember. God-pleasing religion practices what it preaches. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Christianity is a religion that's based on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, you can't practice God-pleasing religion unless you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything you do flows from that relationship. Which, of course, begs the question, how do I begin a personal relationship with Jesus? I'm going to close by, by, by telling you. You see, the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as a result of our sin, our relationship with God is broken. And unless our relationship is restored, when we die, when you die, you must go to a place of punishment. that The Bible calls hell, an eternal place of punishment. Why? Because God is holy and he cannot have anything to do with sin. But the good news is, and the reason why we celebrate each and every week, is that 2,000 years ago, God in his great love for you and me became a man in Jesus and lived a perfect life and died on a cross, paying the penalty for your sins and mine. When he hung on that cross, he had your sins upon himself. And in doing so, he provided a way to receive forgiveness for your sins and be saved and receive eternal life. You know, everything you need to know about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is found in one verse in the Bible. Did you guys know that? One verse tells you everything you need to know about beginning a personal relationship with Jesus. It's John 3.16. Many of you have heard it. Maybe you've never really listened to it before, but you certainly heard it because uh, it's everywhere. And uh, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There it is. Everything you need to know is found in that one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, to be saved, you must believe. You must believe that you're a sinner, believe that there's nothing that you can do in your own strength and power to take away your sin. So many of us think, oh, I could just, take, I could just uh, keep up my good deeds and, and, and that'll kind of make up for my sin problem. It doesn't work that way. You've got to release control. There's nothing you could do. You need to believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins so that you might have the opportunity to be saved. Believe that his finished work on the cross was enough. Believe not in yourself or your good works, but trust in him and him alone for eternal life. Friend, listen to me. If you walked in here this morning having never had a personal relationship with Jesus, maybe you did come in thinking, you know, Christianity is merely just a religion in its plainest uh, most humdrum form. It's liturgical. It's going through the motions. It's trying to obey and trying. It, it's more than just, it all be, it's all centered around a person, and it is Jesus. It is Jesus. And so maybe you walked in here and you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but you, need, you know you need to walk out having one. You can begin your personal relationship with him and have the assurance of eternal life by simply praying something like this in the, in the quietness of your seat. You could say, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness, and I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin and that you raised him to life, and I want to trust him as my Savior and follow him as my Lord from this day forward. Guide me with my life. Help me to do your will. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And I want to tell you something. If you pray 
Something like that. It's not the prayer, it's the belief that saves you. But if you acknowledge before God that you want to be saved, I'm going to tell you something. He's going to save you this morning. He's going to save you. And you could leave here with the assurance of eternal life and begin your relationship with Jesus. Now you're not going to become automatically perfect overnight. None of us are perfect, but the process begins. Being made and made more like Jesus, God-pleasing religion. You're going to start little by little starting to practice what you hear preached through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a relationship. When I first met Carrie, I didn't know her very well other than I wanted to date her. And so all of a sudden, we started dating, and we got to know each other. And before you know it, we're married, and we're doing life with one another. That's what happens when you begin a personal relationship with Jesus. It all starts with belief, and then you get to know Jesus. And little by little, your life starts to change as a result. Amen? So if you need that this morning, pray to receive Christ. And if you did pray to receive Christ, you'd like to know more about it, you can come forward and talk to me after church, after the service. There's some packets of information up front here. It's got the Gospel of John and a book of questions that can help you get started in your relationship with Jesus. But by all means, you come. And so at this time, I'd like to invite the praise team forward as we close in song. I will close us in prayer as they're coming forward. And we're going to close with singing a song, one of, my, one of my new favorite songs that just talks about, it's really based right out of Scripture. It's called, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. And it's a great reminder of even what I preached on this morning. You know, God-pleasing religion practices what it preaches. We can't practice this without Jesus living in us. Amen? So we need that, and we need to affirm that truth. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dive back into your word and the privilege that it is. And Lord, it is my sincere desire that beginning with myself, Lord, that we would all leave here closer to Jesus and more motivated to serve you than when we arrived. Lord, help us to please you with how we live our lives. And God, I am so thankful that when we do sin, and we will, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that, Lord, ultimately, our righteousness is based upon what Jesus did and not in ourselves. And we praise you for that truth. But we do recognize that you call us to live holy lives. Help us to do that today. And all God's people said, amen. amen. <clears throat> Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.